Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy are making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to critically examine how language textbooks perpetuate colonialism. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Julia Spiegelman at UMass Boston. Welcome to Season 5 of Lesson Impossible. As you may have noticed, LessonImpossible.com has grown to include a blog for modern foreign language and ELL teachers. I have many different types of posts, such as teaching with music videos, using idioms, fun starter activities, and larger projects. All the examples are in English and French, though most can be adapted to any language that you teach. Related to this episode's topic, I have a blog post about using Moore's taxonomy of representational heteronormativity to examine how your language resources represent LGBTQ individuals. Specifically for French teachers, I also have a post about using inclusive French with a ton of resources to explore. You can find a link to the blog in the show notes. In their 2013 book, Intercultural Language Teaching and Learning, Lidicote and Scarino talk about how textbooks are, quote, designed to provide a comfortable encounter with a language rather than a nuanced encounter with a culture. Often, these texts do not encourage participation in or critical thinking about the cultures of the language students are studying, or even their own culture. This episode's guest, Julia Spiegelman, is talking to us about the flaws that she found while analyzing textbooks, but also about how, by using them thoughtfully, we can help students engage with their textbooks with more nuance. She's specifically looking at teaching French and using French textbooks, though I think her findings and observations could apply to almost all of the languages that are currently taught in schools. The title of this episode is Challenging Language Textbooks. And I chose that because, as a language teacher, I'm a word nerd. And Julia gives us excellent advice on how to actively challenge, the verb form, what we find in our language resources. But I also wanted to highlight challenging's adjective form, because the work we need to do, as Julia and I discuss, involves making mistakes as we navigate our desire to be better teachers. Good luck on your not-so-impossible lesson with agent Julia Spiegelman. All right, Julia, thank you so much for joining me and the listeners on the podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. Do you mind just explaining who you are and what your role in education is? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Um, So my name is Julia Donnelly Spiegelman. Um, I am a queer, white, anti-bias educator. Um, I'm currently a PhD student in applied linguistics. Um, and former middle school French teacher, and I study questions of identity and equity as they relate specifically to French foreign language teaching and learning. And so what brought you to that as a subject that you wanted to investigate at the PhD level, which is pretty deep? What, what was the inspiration for that? 
Yeah. So, um, so I was working at the time as a middle school teacher at a private, um, private school outside of Boston. Um, and I was experiencing a lot of sort of cognitive dissonance and frustration in my classroom. I had all of these ideals of equity and anti-racism. Um, I was becoming increasingly aware of my own whiteness, of the way that my own identity played out in the classroom, um, and the sort of ideologies inherent in, in these institutions, right? These, especially like private schools, which are, are, you know, designed to be exclusive in some ways. I was reading a lot of post-colonial theory. I was in, um, I was doing my master's at the same time. Um, I was reading a lot of Aimé Césaire and France Fanon. Um, I was working with students to, and, and like an amazing multicultural team of teachers to work with students to help them to be aware of their identities um, and talk about power and racism. And at the same time, I felt really constrained. I attended a meeting um, for this conference that I work at called the Multicultural Teaching Institute. Um, it's a Boston-based conference. We work with K-12 teachers about on principles of anti-bias teaching and coaching teachers in sort of like awareness of their own identities and how that plays out in their classrooms. We were doing this activity just as, as faculty professional development. And we read this article that had a title that was something like, you know, decolonize your classroom decolonize your curriculum. And I had this moment where I was like, I can't do that. <laughs> I teach French and French is taught in the United States because of colonialism. Um, there's this huge history of white supremacy that is embedded in the fact that, Fran that French exists as a world language, right? It's because of white supremacy has become because of colonialism and French and French education in particular have been used as tools deliberately for colonial oppression as a way to erase local languages and local cultures and identities. And so I felt, um, I felt really helpless. I felt like the gap between the teacher I wanted to be and the teacher that I was able to be um, was really big. And I wanted to, and I felt like also with this day-to-day -day pressure of teaching, right, the paces and the workload and, and the students and the human needs, I just felt like I didn't have the time to, um, to approach these big problems that I saw in my curriculum and in my discipline um, in a way that was productive or satisfying. And so, um, and so I decided, I like took this big leap and I, I stopped teaching and I devoted myself full time to, um, to learning about these questions of power and privilege and language and in education. And I still teach at, um, I teach on the, at the university level now. So um, they're still mostly adolescents, just bigger ones. <laughs> So I get the privilege of meeting you when you presented to my master's cohort around ways that France and whiteness is privileged in our textbooks. This was the first time that I felt that anyone had ever really said the elephant in the room, which is like what you said, which is France is a colonial language. It's a language that has been used as oppression for, for hundreds of years. To go to your research, do you mind kind of giving me the, the elevator pitch of, of what you were doing? Yeah. So, um, so the research that, that you're talking about, I am, um, so I've, I've been looking for ways to sort of explore and understand and name ideologies around whiteness and Frenchness and colonialism in foreign language teaching, in French foreign language teaching in the U.S. Um, and that's obviously sort of very nebulous and abstract. Um, so I chose something very concrete to study, which was textbooks. 
And I chose two textbooks that are used in secondary school, so sort of like first year of high school French in the U.S. Um, And I did what's called a quantitative content analysis, which is a fancy way of saying I just counted every picture and every time there is a mention of a French-speaking, a place where French is spoken. And that even in itself was something that varied from textbook to textbook. But um, every picture that was identified with a place um, every um, and every sort of sentence that was about um, a place in the Francophone world, quote unquote, Francophone world. Um, and I um, and I analyzed those. So I did a quantitative analysis and then I did um, a discourse analysis where I looked specifically at the passages where um, places where French is spoken outside of France appeared with France and then sort of looked at the way that power dynamics were constructed in a, in a pretty, um, in a subtle but sort of very pervasive way as well. But so to go back, so, so the quantitative analysis, so um, I guess sort of the the important context for this is when we think about the French-speaking world, about France as a world language, only 33% of French speakers in the world live in Europe. Um, and that's a number that's way lower than any any student I've ever asked this question to. <laughs> um, and um, 59% live on the African continent. And so we're looking at almost twice as many spe- you know, French speakers in Africa um, as, in, as in Europe. So sort of with that in mind, the comparison to these textbooks was, um, yeah, 75% of the photos in one of the textbooks and 87% in the other um, were of Europe. Compared to Paris, for example, there were... Um, a quarter, over a quarter of the of the photos in each of these textbooks was of Paris, which in some of them the books was twice as many of the entire Francophone world <laughs> outside of metropolitan France. So, um, so even though, and these are textbooks that were that were published relatively recently, they're all about intercultural understanding. They have big maps at the beginning about let's understand the Francophone world and look all the places you can use French. Um, but when it comes down to it, they um, they present France as being the norm, the majority, and then and then Paris as this, as this <laughs> deep satellite that's more important than, um, than the entire rest of the Francophone world. Yeah, I also found that there were, um, that in terms of the diversity of representation, one of the textbooks had I think 53 different cities and 10 regions in metropolitan France that were pictured and then 11 cities in Africa and like the entire continent of Africa. One of the textbooks only had photos of three cities outside of France and they were Dakar, the capital of Senegal, um, and then Quebec and Montréal. Um, and that is all that students who read those textbooks got to see of the Francophone world outside France. I mean, I- I think the answer to any big question is always like it's systematic and there's many layers and it's structural racism and all of that stuff. But what would you attribute to being the reasons unless, you know, we're assuming that there's not a book publisher sitting in their office, just stroking a beard being like, it's all France. What is it that's um, implicit in the way that we teach language and sell language that has led to these textbooks privileging Europe over other areas of the Francophonie? Yeah, um, I think I think your word "cells" is really key there. Um, there is a big history of France and Paris being associated with a prestige factor, um, and that lives on. Um, I think in 
um, you know, photos of the, of museums and the sort of, um, richness that's associated with European history and culture and food is a sort of cultural capital that is very marketable. And I think that particularly, so in the U S, um, there's been a lot of anxiety around number, decreasing numbers in foreign language and enrollment overall, and then a particular anxiety about French, um, being on the decline in favor of it's changed over the years, you know, insert one Spanish, Mandarin, Arabic. Um, and so the sort of semi-economic insecurity about, about the, um, the marketability of the language, um, that I think, I think that the cultural capital, the sort of the, which is that's steeped in white supremacy, right. Of, um, of France is very valuable. And I think that that, I think, I think that is capitalized on, I think that's definitely one thing. I think another thing is that, um, textbook authors and publishers, and this is conjecture, I don't know. Um, (laughs) I I mean that the same imbalances and scarcity of information about the non-French Francophone world that I experienced in my education um, and that I'm combating in my classes is true for, um, for everyone. (laughs) I think, I think that, um, I think that textbook writers don't necessarily have a background where they are familiar with um, the culture of all of these countries, you know, around the world, um, and the cultural products and, and the histories. Um, and so I think, um, I think there's also sort of a lack of, um, a lack of depth that comes with a lack of information and a lack of investment and maybe even a lack of, um, energy (laughs) to find out. (laughs) Um, I, something that, you touched on, which I feel is like a pet peeve of mine, is the the narrative that we study language so that we can then travel. Mm-hmm. And I agree that like a communicative approach and travel, communicating with natives, that is part of it. But this whole idea that the only reason that we would take the time to learn a language isn't to enjoy the language or a culture or a history, but it's so that we can then go and, you know, ride around in our bicycle in France with a baguette in the front basket with our scarf streaming in the wind. That seems to be the the only correct and real reason to study a language. And, and I feel like there's also packed into that so many assumptions about who can afford then to take a language, what they're going to do with that language, why they would choose Europe over traveling to other places and and all that baggage. And it just, yeah, the even the way that some textbooks are set up within the the construct of you can use this when you travel and that implicit assumption just really gets my goat sometimes I have to say. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And that's, that is one of the, um, the findings actually of the discourse analysis I did, um, was this very prevalent, like consumerist discourse. And often, like you're saying, the student is positioned as, um, as a traveler, right. As a, and as a potential consumer of this world of products, Right. And in the way that these textbooks are marketing themselves as the French speaking world to the students in in a lot of ways, like um, the way even that they're written, um, it's sort of like little advertisements for um, different um, like I'm trying to look at one of the examples I have. 
Um, so one of the textbooks had lots of fun facts. So this is the one about um, Le Bénin. So the two sentences about, I'm sorry, it's one sentence about Bénin that's in this book, which is um, Bon Voyage, um, says it has the population, the capital, and then the fun fact. Bénin has one of the most popular tourist attractions in all of West Africa, the fishing village of, I can't read it, Gonvier, I think, um, built on stilts in the middle of a lagoon not far from the capital, Porto Novo. And so this is all that this, <laughs> this needs to know about Bénin is that you can't miss this tourist attraction. We don't know anything about people who live there. We don't know anything about, um, about Bénin's history. We just know that if you, you know, buy your ticket, then here is the unmissable tourist attraction. Um, and it's, it's very reductive. We miss, we miss a lot. So uh, I talk a lot in my podcast about certain teachers that uh, I've met in my teaching career who live in my brain and who chirp at me uh, whenever I'm trying to do something progressive or innovative. And I, I try and have my guests speak back to those teachers uh, somewhat on my behalf, if you will. And so one of the first voices that, that comes to me is, well, that's all very well and good, but if we spend all this time talking about Ben now, then what happens to the past perfect? We can't fit everything in. Oh my gosh. You can talk about so many things using language. You can talk about so many things using the past perfect. You can talk about so many things using the imparfait and the passé composé and relative pronouns. And, um, and the amazing thing about being a language teacher is that you get to choose what you talk about. And you can listen to your students and you can talk about what interests them. That's one of the things that I find always really stimulating about, about being a language teacher is that um, anything can be relevant if we want to talk about it. So it's all. Um, and the, the other thing I think is that a lot of teachers, myself included, feel the pressure to be sort of the expert on a topic in order to introduce it to a class. So think I need to be able, I need to be able to answer all the questions so I can't. I can't talk about Francophone West Africa because I didn't learn about it, you know? Um, and, and I think that's a fair, I think that's an important observation to be self-aware of when you're thinking about your own positionality. Um, but I also think that um, the need to, this desire to be perfect and to be the expert and to, um, is, is also rooted in, in white supremacy and then the kind of perfectionism that a lot of white people feel like they have to be the best white person and do all of the things right. And, um, <laughs> And the thing is, we live in a racist society and nothing is right. <laughs> um, and if we think that we're doing something right, then we're ignoring where the real need is. And so um, I think we need to be sensitive. We need to be prepared. We need to listen. We need to be ready to do wrong. We need to be ready to apologize. But I think that we can also and should unseat ourselves as experts and allow ourselves to enter into these conversations with students where students are bringing their questions and we can research together and they're bringing their experiences and their backgrounds. Um, and um, I think ultimately that creates a learning space that's a lot more democratic and fruitful um, and, and let's use the Pusco Parfait, you know, <laughs> like, let's use all the things to have those conversations. No, I love that. And that definitely addressed my my second question, which is, yeah, that that idea of, well, if I don't know all about it, I can't teach it. But you're right. You want to put ourselves with students and facilitate their learning journeys. I think in a lot of cases, as elective teachers, we feel like we have to sell our courses as 
fun and happy and not too difficult because our jobs depend on students signing up for it. And so maybe we feel like we have to add a trip to France at the end of that three years coursework. And if we chose something other than France, it wouldn't grab students. Or if we talk too much about things like systematic racism or histories of colonialism, that would make students less inclined to take our courses. What would you say to the teacher that's like, no, I just want to provide the positive French and the negative French has no place in my classroom? I think that makes me think a lot about the way that white privilege has become a dirty word. Um, in a lot of settings and how um, school, I hear this particularly in, in um, my friends who are consultants in schools, um, the sort of rejection of anything that makes people feel bad, right? So like we have to prevent, we have to protect white people's feelings at all costs. Everything needs to be good and happy. We can't, no, no guilt, shame or blame, right? Those are bad feelings. And as someone who was socialized as a white person in a 94% white state um, and who lives in a world that is deeply racist and deeply unjust, I feel that it takes a lot of cognitive dissonance to move through the world and feel like everything is okay <laughs> as a white person because you have to ignore so much and you have to justify so much and you end up with these, you know, repeating these like racist, meritocratic, you know, justifications for if there is poverty, then it must be because those people didn't work hard enough and, you know, um, justifying and dismissing. And for me, like becoming aware of my whiteness and my role, even my complicity and my responsibility in that has been such a huge thing for allowing me to feel that I can work honestly in coalition with people of color, with people whose identities are different than mine. Because ultimately all of that work, all of that denial takes away a part of my humanity because it makes me benefit <laughs> willingly in other people's oppression. And, and that's not something that I'm okay with. So I think that, um, I, this is maybe not the way to market your program, but I feel <laughs> I, I, I had to say that thinking about hard things doesn't make you un, my, like it doesn't make your life worse. Like it might, and then maybe you should think about that. Um, but I think ultimately we're all part of the system, and in order to liberate ourselves all from it, we need to talk about it, and it hurts all of us. Um, and so personally, I find that there's liberation in these conversations and, and I wouldn't do it in a way, obviously that, you know, colonization and racism and all of these isms, these are sensitive topics that impact every individual in your classroom differently. Um, and I think that these conversations need to be handled very sensitively and responsibly to students. Um, I don't think that they should be sort of thrown around lightly, um, but I also think that that there's relief in that. And when I have worked with students in settings where all of a sudden we're allowed to talk about what you call the elephant in the room, to talk about racism and cissexism and power and language, there's excitement sometimes in, in feeling like you can notice it and you can talk about it and you can make sense of it. Um, and I think a classroom and the language classroom can be this really um, special space where that can happen in community. Yeah. And, and I think too, that this assumption, like you said, that students themselves don't want to ever engage in that work is, is a false one because that's part of what being a young person is, is exploring your own identity. And that's no matter what situation you're in, that's never easy work. And two, you know, we, I think of my own students who might have their own first languages 
and don't have the language, no pun intended, but don't have the words to express how they feel about, let's say, speaking um, Mandarin, even though they're historically their family hasn't spoken that language, but that's the language that they learned in school. And then now they're in a new place and they're learning English, which is also a colonialist language. And so being able to talk about French, even if you're putting it at first in this other position of, okay, this is the what happened to other people interacting with French, then they can reflect on their own experiences because learning a colonizer's language is is not unique to people that have been colonized by the French. Absolutely. Yeah. I think some of the best conversations I've had with students um, has been drawing our awareness of language to English and sort of, and talking about things like, you know, why do we learn Because my students um, tend to be sort of very defensive about linguistic prescriptivism, about the idea that there's a right way to write. Um, And and it's because they've been socialized for a long time, you know, to write and to speak in ways that are quote unquote correct and sort of working with them to deconstruct, you know, what makes something correct and who decides that. And well, what's correct in one setting, you know, like, would you speak the same way with the principal of your school as with your brother or, you know, your like cousins of, you know, whatever your home culture is and, and becoming aware of like, I think language, particularly in schools is presented in a very black and white kind of way. Um, which for me as a linguist is totally missing the point of what's interesting about language. <laughs> it's so true. Right. You know, like, <laughs> like in the dictionary, sure. Like that's what people, that's what like a certain small group of people made up, like to reinforce the language forms already used by that small elite group of people. Like we know that that's a cultural product, but how do people actually use language and how do we as individuals um, make choices about the language that we use and how are we perceived differently in those settings? How do we present our identity differently and how does power work? How, how do we use language to, to gain power um, in different, in different scenarios. And I find those conversations to be really fruitful for, for talking about French, um, and talking about languages that coexist, um, multilingual societies. So thinking about Canada, for example, thinking about Bretagne, where I used to live minority languages in France, um, thinking about Morocco, um, and as students research these places, as they learn about them, thinking what languages are spoken and, and in what settings and what languages have prestige and which ones of them have meaning um, and, and which are used for the government and which are used for schools and, and, and those power relations. Um, I think for a lot of students opens up um, a side of language that they've never thought about before, but, but that even monolingual students and to some extent can relate to. I have a bit of a soapbox when it comes to teacher transparency. And to me, this is a really big one too, which is that I think we also need to talk to our students about their own feelings about who we are as their teacher. Mm -hmm. You know, how do you feel about the fact that I am a non-native French speaker teaching you French? How do you feel about the fact that I am a Canadian teaching you French and the cultural baggage that comes with that? How do you feel about the fact that I'm using a version of inclusive French, which the Académie Française says is is not true French? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm making this decision to go against the Academy, but it's, you know, but the Quebec Language Bureau is fine with it. And all, all of these things to talk through with my students 
I found was really freeing. And I mean, again, I'm having these, I don't tend to have the the deeper, deeper conversations until the students are are older and ready to engage with it. But even with my beginning students having that conversation about where I learned my French, what type of French do I privilege, where do I get my idioms from, how I'm trying to expand, but the struggles that I have, I think that can be really important because, you know, to let them know that just because, yes, I've been studying the language for 20 years longer than them doesn't mean that I'm any closer to really, truly understanding my own relationship to the language. Yeah. Yeah. I love modeling that. Um, and also, and what you're doing there is that you're representing your class as a perspective and, um, and not as an objective truth. Right. And that's what we end up doing in a lot of school settings is that, you know, and, and is that the teacher is the authority, the textbook is the authority, and it represents the single objective truth. Um, whereas everybody like these textbooks are totally ideological, you know, it doesn't mean that everything in them is wrong, but like I come to my classroom with particular ideologies, you know, similarly, but the choices that I make about, um, about the language that I model about what I provide, um, is, is a perspective. And so being able to be aware, I think, I think that's really important, um, that students become aware of those, those perspectives and their, and choices and be able to, um, to analyze accordingly, right? And, and think about the different choices that, that we do make with language, that they will make with language, that they do make with language um, to express their values or to support a particular political perspective or point of view, um, but that there's not one right way to do it. I think that different teachers are in, in different positions where some are able to throw out the textbook and some have to, you know, do pages four through 10 on Tuesday. What are some techniques that you've come across for teachers that are perhaps listening to this and being like, yeah, I do feel uncomfortable with my textbook, but I've never really thought about why, or I know exactly why I'm uncomfortable. I just really don't know what to do about feeling that uncomfortable. Where would you direct them for further learning or even any tips and tricks for kind of subverting the textbook narrative, even if you're forced to use it? Yeah. Um, those are great questions. Um, before I forget, I want to give a shout out to the DDFC collective, um, diversity decolonization in the French curriculum, um, which has recently propped up. Um, it is online. Um, there's an online presence. There are going to be more and more sort of events and stuff. Um, and that was the first, organization that I found um, and was just founded last year that um, that is having these conversations. So the first thing I want to say is tune in there because we need um, rad <laughs> French teachers doing the stuff in the classroom so that we can share our resources and our ideas um, because it's it can be really isolating. I know for me, um, it, it has been very isolating. Um, the other thing I want to say is that I think textbooks are really interesting. And, um, and I think we can work with textbooks, even if you have to use your textbook, um, in a way that promotes critical inquiry um, by looking at how people and places are represented in them. And a lot of that representation has to, is, is rooted in language and can be observed through language. Um, and so by looking at how people are named, what names are they called by? Um, some of the textbooks had um, 
um, Europeans and then slaves. You know, those were the words that were used to name groups of oh, people. Geez. You know, or like, or um, you know, French students and Vietnamese restaurants, where you have some groups of people that are people and have agency, and some of them are products <laughs> or establishments, and 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 you can learn a lot um, just by paying attention to those subtle linguistic patterns that reflect ways of thinking because when you have Europeans and you have slaves, you have people who are capable of action. And then you are people who are reduced to objects who have no cultural, ethnic, or national identity. And that representation has a power difference. And that's a decision that that the authors made when they wrote. And that decision represents a particular perspective. And that perspective is linked to history. And we can react to those representations. Um, we can notice them we can analyze them and we can make new ones. I, one thing I love to do with students is to rewrite texts, um, which sometimes it might require more research, but it could simply require, you know, the, the erasure of a, a passive voice. I, I learned German in college and um, I remember super strongly as the one Jewish student in my class um, that the lesson we learned the passive voice was with a text on Kristallnacht. What? Really? Yeah. Um, and it was like, blah, 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 synagogues were destroyed and businesses were set on fire. And I, and, and the, like the, <laughs> I was the irony, I mean, it was just so, um, such a clear illustration of a denial of responsibility. It's like this, here's the grammatical structure that allows things to happen without people doing them. And like, this is the example that we're going to use to demonstrate that was particularly, um, has stuck with me. Um, but you know, and those are choices and we can, and we didn't talk about it at the time. I think I was just sort of quietly traumatized, but, um, but we could have, you know, if there had been a classroom environment where that had been a question, the way that we tell history, you know, we can choose to challenge the ideology and the power dynamics and, and what happened, um, or we can replicate it. And, in examining it, we're honing our linguistic skills. We're starting to notice the, not not just what language means, but how it means. How do we use words and how do we use grammatical structures to make meaning, to reify, <laughs> to construct, or to challenge these images of people um, that are, you know, that are unjust and that continue throughout history. Um, so, so I think, I think linguistic analysis, that kind of discourse analysis with students can be really interesting and it doesn't necessarily take long. It could be, it could be as much as asking after a text, you know, what perspective is this from, you know, who are the groups of people and what history is this referring to and how else could we have said it and what could that have meant? Um, and that's all, it's all reinforcing linguistic competence, sociolinguistic competence and honing students' awareness. I love that because I can, I can actually picture so many excerpts from textbooks where I'm like, yes, I want my students to rewrite that. Like even just the way that when we talk about indigenous populations, it's always in the past tense. Like how easy is it to just be like, okay, let's just rewrite this, but put it in the present tense. I was thinking, I was just thinking about an example I passed in my, um, the, the textbook I used at the university level, um, the only text I've seen so far in this course that has African speakers of French um, who are identified as such is a safari. What? 
Um, I was just thinking, so, so, you know, we, we have these ideals and also like we, we miss opportunities. And so I, in, in my mind, I was just like, um, I made a decision last week or whenever to just skip those pages. And I taught, you know, I taught the content as a separate thing. Um, and that was a, I mean, that was a decision that had to do with time. I think it had to do with my, my mental level, my emotional, you know, bandwidth of that day. Um, and, and that's something that if I were to go back, I would also have students look at and just, you know, take two minutes to say, you know, what's going on here? <laughs> like, you know, why, you know, why is this happening and why are we skipping it? Um, and what's behind it? You know, where have we seen this before? Because these messages and these patterns don't exist in a vacuum. They're, you know, they're linked throughout history to all of these different occurrences. That's why the Kristallnacht um, example hit me so hard. And so developing that awareness where you're seeing those connections and you're taking the opportunity to, to challenge it where you can, I think is, is progress. And I really appreciate you sharing an example of where you didn't do the thing that we're talking about, because I think oftentimes as teachers who want to be better, we feel like it's an all in or all out. And this idea that just, just because you don't call out every single problematic thing that you see in an incredibly problematic situation doesn't mean that what you're doing isn't good. Just calling out the few things that you either have the bandwidth or the confidence or whatever it is to call out, that's still better than, than just sitting back and doing nothing. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm also a really big fan of the, I'm going to put a pin on that, or I'm going to put a bookmark on that and let's talk about it next time. Or even if you don't say that in the moment, when something happens that's unexpected or something comes up and you just don't know how to react to it, I know I definitely have moments like that, um, to be able to come back next class and say, so, Hey, last time we had this conversation, this thing was said, the thing I want to say about that is whatever, but we don't always have the perfect thing to say in the moment. Things catch us off guard, but that doesn't mean that we missed the boat forever. You know, like it's important for students to see that we think about things. It's important for them to know in the moment, particularly if something harmful is said, um, that we heard it, <laughs> uh, and that it's, you know, and that it's not, it's not going to pass, but it's okay to not know in the moment how to respond and to come back to it later. Um, but I, one thing I always try to do, particularly if something um, happens in front of a group is to circle back with the entire group. Because sometimes what tends to happen is we'll talk individually, maybe to the student who said the thing, but we don't necessarily address it with the whole class. Um, and sometimes that can inadvertently send a message to the class that certain kinds of language or certain kinds of comments or, you know, ideas about history um, are are okay. But it's important for that to be addressed with everybody. So everybody knows it's part of, you know, making sure that students know where the boundaries are and know that they're going to be safe and that they're treated fairly, um, is, is to say, you know, I, I got this, I got you. <laughs> um, yeah. We talked about research that you have done. What's your research future looking like? What are you investigating now? My dissertation research is, is looking at a different angle of this question of how can we make foreign language classes more equitable. Um, but instead of looking at race um, and colonialism, it's looking at gender. So my dissertation research is looking at non-binary high school students in the U.S., um, their experiences learning French and Spanish as a foreign language at school. Amazing. And when will we have a chance to, to see that research? Um, uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> maybe a couple of years. I have a case study that's hopefully going to be published in the next year. I had the privilege of speaking with one student about um, what actually was a very traumatic experience of being misgendered in French class, uh, demotivated the student from continuing to learn the language. Um, and so my goal is to um, is to get student voices out there for teachers because um, this is a place where this binary gender ideology lives in the languages we're teaching, if we're following traditional grammar, it, and that's linked with certain ideas of how a language should be or what the correct version of the language is. And it also lives often in our, it lives in our society and our, our, you know, social life and systems. And it's a place where um, our classes are not always safe spaces for, um, for students who identify outside of the gender binary to learn. And so in the aim of informing pedagogy um, and and materials so that we can make these spaces safer um, and places where everyone can learn, we need to hear from students. And so, um, so that's what I'll be doing um, for the next two years. And for listeners who want to follow you and keep learning about the journey that you're going on with your research, how can they do that? You can always email me. I have a website, which I should update more often. That's um, juliaspiegelman.com. I'm on Twitter at Julia Spiegelman. Um, and hopefully some publications and other stuff will be getting out there too. So um, feel free to be in touch. I love um, talking to other teachers about these questions, especially having felt so alone um, in asking them for so long. Awesome. Thank you so much, Julia. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. Me too. This episode will not self-destruct in five seconds, but will remain available on your preferred podcasting platform. Lesson Impossible is proud to be one of the many amazing school rubric podcasts. Links to resources or people we mentioned and information in general about the podcast can be found at lessonimpossible.com. If you enjoy the podcast, you can help other listeners discover it by rating and reviewing on iTunes forwarding it to a colleague, or posting a link in your favorite educational chat. This has been Less Than Impossible, and I was your host, Aviva Levin.